An honorable profession is brought to you by OpenCounter.com. OpenCounter builds tools for local governments to deliver permits and licenses online. Their portals make complex permitting simple, which lowers transaction costs, increases transparency, and empowers economic development. OpenCounter is a vital tool for communities big and small across the nation, including Atlanta, Charlotte, Oakland, Indianapolis, and San Diego. Check out OpenCounter.com to see what they can do for your community. If you like an honorable profession, I encourage you to check out another great podcast that's out to give you hope in an often hopeless world. Dastardly Cleverness in the Service of Good. Each episode, my friend Spencer Critchley talks to people who are making tremendous positive impacts on our world. The conversations are funny, engaging, and hopeful. Listen to Dastardly Cleverness on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Brian Coonerty. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports some of the most thoughtful and innovative voices in American politics. I've been a member of New Deal for years, both when I was mayor of Santa Cruz and now as chair of the Santa Cruz County Board of Supervisors. Check out some of our past episodes with guests like Mayor Pete, Wisconsin Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, candidate for U.S. Senate Amanda Edwards, and more than a dozen amazing leaders at the state and local level. You can find us at newdealleaders.org or wherever podcasts are found. And if you like what you hear, please tell your friends. We're trying to bring sanity to politics in an insane era. We need all the help we can get. Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Today, I'm talking with Maricopa County recorder, Adrian Fontes. You might ask, what's a recorder and why should I care? Well, this recorder runs elections in Arizona's most populous county, the fourth largest county in the United States, in a swing state at a time when our democracy is under attack. Adrian's a New Deal leader, a remarkable American. He's a former Marine, a lawyer, and an all-around amazing guy. He's going to talk about why he does what he does, and give us a report from the front lines of democracy in America in 2019. Enjoy. Adrian Fontes, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It is really exciting to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So you are our first recorder we've uh, interviewed on this podcast, and um, some people at home might be wondering, what the hell's a recorder, and why should I care? So tell us why, uh, why we need to know what you do and why you do it. So the county recorder in Arizona and in many Western states is the person who holds on to all the very important documents of your life. So when you buy a house, when you are discharged from the military, uh, all those documents that you record, uh, sometimes at a county clerk, sometimes at a courthouse, uh, those come to our office and we maintain those documents in perpetuity. Um, The great thing about the county recorder Uh, in Arizona is that we are also the registrar of voters. And so that goes back to the old American tradition uh, pre-United States of America, where only folks who owned property, uh, then the person who had the list of property owners, uh, only the people who owned property could vote. And so that goes way back. uh, And in many places in the United States, you'll see that same connection 
with the person, the clerk, the officer, whoever who holds the property rolls also has the voter rolls. I had never made that connection before. That is a, that's a kind of a tragic connection, but, um, (laughs) well, we see it as tragic now, but you know, when the Virginia company and all these other folks came over from, um, England, the original towns and stuff were really investments. They were company towns and you had a part of the franchise where you were a property owner and you paid taxes. Uh, you were paying into the company and that's why we call it a franchise. And so American democracy really started as a business. You know, they say the business of America is business. Uh, well, the business of our tax paying unit that governed things was a company. So that's why that connection exists. And we've done nothing but expand the franchise, obviously. So uh, while I would be happy to spend the next 30 minutes talking to you about whether you're digitally recording various uh, pieces of paperwork and delivery of services to your citizens, which is obviously extremely important, let's talk to you about this uh, registrar voters piece. This is obviously you, uh, Maricopa County is the largest county in Arizona. It's fourth largest county in the United States. Um, It's also ground zero in a purple state. Uh, So you found yourself in the middle of a lot of democratic conversations as, uh, as people try to figure out what to do. And I've been struck in reading about you, how you're sort of doing your best to do exactly what all of us as Americans would want, which is to register people and regardless of their political affiliation, uh, make sure they have an opportunity to vote and then count their votes fairly as possible. Yet you found yourself in the crosshairs of a number of people recently, but on both sides of the political spectrum. Do you want to talk about some of those challenges and how you see this all playing out as sort of a microcosm of many of the challenges we're facing in our democracy? Sure. Well, for context, the the first thing I think is important is Maricopa County is actually the third largest voting jurisdiction in the United States behind L.A. County and Harris County, which is the Houston area. We've got 4.4 million people and 2.3 million registered voters. And my job doesn't just entail registering voters, but it also entails administering the actual elections themselves. And we have a very large, uh, no-excuse absentee voting list, the permanent early vote list. So uh, we deal with uh, everything from poll workers to tabulation to voting and, and all of that stuff. And my predecessor had been in office for 28 years, never challenged by a Democrat. And it was a very unsung office. It was a very standard thing. Uh, and so I ran because of the long lines that people saw in 2016, where we had four and five hour lines. And, you know, I got upset and I decided to run and we ended up beating uh, this person who was here for a long time. And that wasn't really very welcome by a place that has been very red for a very long time. And it is challenging personally, because again, like I said, this is my first political office. And I wanted to look at it as a problem solver would. We wanted to analyze the circumstances, look at the situation on the ground and the problems, and then decide whether or not we were going to make these changes or those changes and what the timing was going to look like. And so, you know, we we took sort of a business-like approach to it, but we had to see how it was operating first. So we've been slow and methodical in our approach, and we've made a lot of changes technological changes, staffing changes, budgeting changes, particularly outreach changes. And that's one of the reasons why I think we've been so successful um, in sort of the public's eye. Uh, We've been doing surveys and and checking out what's been going on. And it really has been an adventure. And I'm incredibly grateful 
that I'm here. And so, you know, you hear a lot, you see a lot. There's a lot of controversy swirling around these decisions and those decisions because we upset the apple cart in favor of voters. But at the end of the day, it's just all very exciting to be part of this incredible change that's happening in this incredible place uh, where, you know, we've got... Uh, more than two dozen municipalities. We've got five congressional districts that are completely contained inside of our county. Uh, you know, it's it's a huge, huge place. And so I'm just a really lucky guy, and I'm very grateful uh, that I get to be uh, doing this job at this time. And can you go back and remind us what happened in 2016 and what sort of spurred you into action? Because uh, it's these things are still happening in all across this country. Yeah, so, you know, I had, my, my mom had, it's kind of funny, my mom had promised me a trip to Greece uh, when I graduated from high school in 1988. And so in 2016, <laughs> we actually went, and we got back the day before uh, Arizona's presidential primary, which we call a presidential preference election. And the next day, I was working on one of the campaigns uh, back at the headquarters, and we started hearing reports all day long of lines getting longer and longer and longer. You know, I know in a lot of communities, folks are used to standing in line for an hour or two. It's not unusual. But here in Arizona, uh, we like things quick and easy. And we started seeing three-hour lines, four-hour lines, five-hour long lines building up as the day went on. And it was just, to me, uh, it was so upsetting, you know, that folks had to leave. Uh, they couldn't vote just because they couldn't get through the line. And there was misinformation and disinformation about whether or not independents could vote. And it was just a massive, massive disaster. And I felt so offended by it that I thought, you know, we really have to have a conversation about these things. And so I decided to run for the office that administered all of the elections at the time and basically ran the whole show. And uh, in running, I really didn't anticipate winning, to be truthful. I, I thought we'd give it a good run, have a great conversation, challenge the status quo, uh, you know, and move the chains a little bit towards a more voter-centric attitude, at least, or at least get people's attention to this office that was so important. And then, you know, by the time we hit the middle of November, gosh, it looked like I was going to end up having to do the job. <laughs> and so that's what motivated me. I just didn't like what I saw happening. And, uh, and I ran because it was very important that we have that conversation. And now, so you run, you get elected in what, again, was a traditionally Republican county, um, and almost immediately you have the Board of Supervisors uh, who are Republican-dominated um, take action to try to uh, limit some of your ability to do the job that your predecessor had done. Do you want to talk, give us a little overview of what happened there and how it's played out? Yeah, well, Maricopa County has traditionally been a very, very red place, and uh, I'm a blue guy. And so, you know, the fact that I ended up winning, uh, or rather the referenda against the incumbent came down, uh, you know, not in her favor, regardless of how you see it, I ended up in the office. And he, here's a person that was very well liked by the establishment on that side, was very well recognized, had mentored a lot of these folks um, through their offices when they were younger and stuff, just an institution. And when she went away, there was a lot of personal resentment towards me in a variety of ways. And the, one of the first things that I encountered was, you know, the election department itself, which by statute belongs to the Board of Supervisors, had been chartered to the county recorder since 1955. 
And now all of a sudden, oh, we can't have the one person in charge of all this stuff. Let's take it away from the recorder and bring it back to the Board of Supervisors. So it was clearly political. Uh, it was clear, you know, I hadn't even done anything yet. I had barely gotten <laughs> sworn in. And they're like, we got to take all of this away from this guy. And I, it was kind of comical to me. But look, I'm an attorney. I know what the statute said. And I was like, well, if they take it, there's not a hell of a lot that I can do about it. But they didn't. Uh, they were kind of tamped down by folks who were saying, look, this guy got elected to do this job. Let's give him a chance. And so cooler heads did prevail. And even among Republicans, they were like, you know, hey, let's let's see what this guy can do. So, you know, as red as Maricopa County is, uh, we're a very pragmatic, uh, straightforward group of folks here on both sides of the political aisle. And so we just kind of want to get stuff done. And there's a lot of opportunity here. So they gave me a shot. And we did really, really well. And there was still a little bit of political animus, you know, even a couple of years later. And folks are grumpy about this or grumpy about that. But you can't fight against the numbers, right? You can't argue against the fact that from 2014 to 2018, midterm to midterm, Maricopa County saw a 42.5% increase in voter turnout. Now, the only difference is the administration in the office that moves voters towards the polling places, that moves voters towards awareness. Uh, and that was such a great feather in our cap. But we still wanted to make some changes. We still needed to improve things. And so in spite of the fact that at the beginning of my term, folks wanted to take this away from me, I didn't guard it jealously. I've engaged with the board and I've said, yeah, you know what? It is a good government move to have you all at the Board of Supervisors from a different political party play an instrumental role in running our elections because our the, the integrity of our election system, and that means that the voters believe in it, that's much more important than me grabbing and holding on to a whole bunch of power, right? So my political ego had to take second place to good government models. And so we are now sharing uh, some of the roles that had been completely in the hands of the recorder with the Board of Supervisors because we brought everyone together and we sat down and we said, what are we going to do to make this system better for the voters? And so they gave us a whole bunch of new resources and um, you know we are advancing things in a really, really good way. So what started out as a very hostile wannabe takeover ended up being a realization uh, on my part and on their part, hey, we can look at a better model and not fight against each other, but work with each other towards something that's kind of what they wanted to do, but motivated by um, sort of the right moves and the, and, and the right spirit. And, and that's what we're, we're working towards right now. And, and it looks pretty good. And it's, yeah, it's an absolute model and inspiration for so many communities that are struggling with just this question. Uh, but I think what happens when you have, you get it figured out at the local level, there seems to be a bipartisan support for our democracy. And then you have two close Senate races, one in the past, one likely coming. Uh, and you have a president of the United States who's calling your systems into question. That must be discombobulating, uh, to say the least. Well, it's, it, it is rough. I mean, particularly, you know, when you have the chief executive of the nation um, making the kinds of, uh, you know, 
not so veiled accusations uh, that you've got. But but here's a reality: um, a lot of the folks that we kept on board have been in the in, in, with the office for 30 years. Yeah, 25, 30 year veterans of the office. They just needed uh, fresh leadership to come in and let them do their thing. Uh, so we've done a lot of the improvements with the old employees who are pretty well trusted and, and some are very well known by folks in the community. So that was a good thing. Letting those folks use their experience, getting them the resources that they needed to really run with the ball. So that's good. Number two, the fact that we are working so closely together um, with the board and we're being really public about it. And that's a good thing. Instead of just kind of being behind the scenes and saying, oh, we're just getting stuff just doing the business of business, we're promoting our bipartisanship. You know, the, the chairman, Bill Gates, and I, and, and he's a Republican, former city council member in Phoenix, uh, he is, he is uh, the Republican's Republican, but we're getting along really well because uh, we know that that's best for our system, it's best for our voters, it's, be- it's good government, right? And, and, and this, this particular little corner of, of government administration is the golden thread that holds together the fabric of our democracy. And if we tarnish that golden thread, if it falls apart, the whole thing goes away. And so everyone involved knows how important this is at the local level. And we're kind of ignoring that kind of barking and whining that's coming from Washington, D.C. We're trying to work with folks in the Congress to get the funding we need for security and a lot of this other stuff. But as to sort of the general malaise that has started to coat everything else, we're really avoiding it by sticking with uh, our positive messaging, our very transparent transactions that we're working with, uh, and, and just the fact that we're actually doing it together openly, uh, I think is, uh, is, is a really good counter uh, to the weirdness coming from, uh, coming from the other side of the country. <laughs> That's a, that is that is absolutely true, but lest anyone think that um, your uh, efforts are, are not just about pushing uh, the Republican Party into their uh, maybe an uncomfortable place uh, for the good of democracy, you've also recently been pushing the Democratic Party in Arizona into an uncomfortable place for what you think is the good of democracy. Do you want to talk about uh, that effort? Yeah, well, Arizona's got a really weird system, and I say weird because it's, it, it, it's, well, it is, it's a little weird. So we have an open primary in August for every office, um, U.S. Senate, Congress, all the statewide, governor, treasurer, et cetera, um, for legislative races. And open primary means uh, Republicans get Republican ballots, Democrats get Democratic ballots, non-party designated or independent voters get to pick one or the other. So that, that's the open nature of our system. But in March, we have what we call this presidential preference election. It's for that one office. The parties are kind of charged with deciding who gets to run or not. And it's closed to only party members. And I always thought that that was just ridiculous, right? Because well, if it's okay for governor and senator, uh, you know, U.S. Senate and everything else, why isn't it okay for the president of the United States? Plus, these are taxpayer-funded elections. And so that's what gets the folks on the, uh, on the right side of the aisle a little grumpy. They're like, these folks are paying taxes to fund this thing, and they can't vote in it, uh, even when you know, one party or the other can cancel. And so this year, the Republicans have canceled, so there will not be a primary in Arizona. 
or the presidential preference election for Republicans. Democrats did it for Barack Obama to protect him. Uh, the Republicans did it for Bush. The Democrats did it for Clinton. That's okay. That's kind of a thing that we do. But the independents and the non-party designated folks never get to vote. So I said, let's fix this. Because the party, according to the United States Supreme Court, can say we want this law invalidated as unconstitutional because we have the freedom to associate with whom we will, and we want to associate with independents or non-party designated voters. So the party can challenge the law, and so I put a resolution on the table at the Democratic Party uh, convention recently, towards the end of September of 2019, and said, the resolution basically said, the party says, Madam Chair, go tell the Secretary of State that we want to open this thing up. And the lawsuit would have gone through in a snap because it's a slam dunk, right? The, the Supreme Court has already said these laws are unconstitutional. It just needs to be challenged, and then it'll be done. Well, the party decided no, and, you know, I get uh, some kind of crossways looks once in a while from folks who wear blue shirts on the weekends knocking on doors, and it's not always super comfortable, but at the end of the day, in my mind, is the right thing to do. Look, independents are, are voters, too, and they're going to get to pick who may very well be the nominee to become the next president of the United States. And it doesn't make any sense to sequester that single office away from an open primary when every other political office is subject to an open primary. It just doesn't make any sense. So not only I thought was it was the right thing to do, but it was the common sense thing to do, uh, unfortunately, the state party didn't agree, and um, so you know it's been a little rough for the last week or so. But we'll we'll all get over it. Yeah, and I think I mean there's a there's a number of arguments. One is, at least out in California, no party preference is the fastest growing political party uh, we have, and if we don't try to talk to those voters and engage those voters. Um, one, you're right, it's, it's sort of un-American to shut them out of an election. But two, uh, asking those voters to get to come vote for a candidate that they didn't get to weigh in on in March and November uh, gets a lot harder, right? I mean, it's... You, you well, want... there's, you know, there's a bunch of other reasons, too. You know, 41% of Latinos in Arizona, and that's a fast-growing group, 41% are no party designated. That's a plurality. Right. Right? When you look at Iraq and Afghanistan veterans... 49% of those voters who served this country don't pick a party. It is the single fastest growing political party, no party, in the United States of America. And you're absolutely right. The political uh, calculus here, I think, was, was really, really uh, uh, mis miscounted because now we as an Arizona Democratic Party have told a larger chunk of the voters than we have. Because in Arizona, the voter registration is first place is Republicans, second place is independents, and the Democrats are in third place. So we've basically said to this larger group of voters than us, you can't play in our sandbox. Well, guess what? We're going to need them in November right. of 2020. So does that make a lot of sense? I don't think so. But then, look, our process went through... Uh, we lost that battle. Over time, we may end up winning the war. Um, Senator Martin Quesada from here in, in, in the greater Phoenix area has been sponsoring a bill to change this for a long time. Um, he's a Democrat. Uh, Republican Governor Doug Ducey thinks that the system is not so great. Um, he 
could call a special session to change it, but he doesn't have any political reasons to do so. Uh, you know, pretty much everybody that you ask is like, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, but we went to the uh, party convention, and they said no, so we're stuck with the system we've got, and we're going to have to make the best of it. Wow. So now you mentioned veterans, and you are a veteran. Tell us about your path. I assume that when you were a kid, uh, you weren't like, I'm going to grow up and be the best recorder Maricopa County's ever seen. Just tell us about your life and how you ended up where you are. Well, um, so I grew up down on the Mexican border in a, in a town called Nogales, Arizona, which I, of course, consider the center of the civilized universe. <laughs> you and the mayor of Nogales. Well, a, a former mayor who happened to have been my grandfather, and he was elected on my ninth birthday. And so that kind of put me in a place where I was always sort of engaged in politics one way or another. And I remember uh, in 1976, I was a little boy, and I remember kind of the whole world was just covered in red, white, and blue, right? And it, was, uh, it made an impression on me. And I really uh, loved the idea of America and the idea of the rule of law, even as a little kid, which seems weird, but I'm not a normal person. Um, and so, you know, after high school, I came up to Arizona State University and I did what a lot of Sun Devils do. Um, and well, maybe not all of them drink their way out of a full ride scholarship, but I did. <laughs> and I had to recover, right? I, I went uh, and, and taught at a, uh, well, I was a counselor at a little high school for a year. And then I uh, enlisted in the Marine Corps. And while, and, you know, I went, <laughs> I tell people all the time, I from Nogales, Arizona, and I joined the United States Marine Corps, and um, I wanted to see the world. And so, you know, I figured I could go overseas, I could go to the East Coast. Well, I ended up getting stationed in Yuma, two hours from my house, which was, <laughs> which was, which was, you know, thanks, Uncle Sam. Right. Um, but I did get to go to Japan, and we, we, we traveled a bit there. And then I came back and finished my bachelor's degree at Arizona State, went to the University of Denver for law school, and I started my prosecuting career there under Bill Ritter, who ended up becoming governor of Colorado, as you know. Yeah. Uh, he was the DA there. And I learned some very important lessons from him. Number one, as a prosecutor, you got a f your, your whole manual on how to do everything can be reduced down to four words. Do the right thing. And he was just, and he is a, a great guy. I, I love Bill Ritter. I saw him when I was at one of the New Deal things uh, not too long ago. And... Uh, just a really amazing guy. Um, then I moved back to Arizona, prosecuted for a little while uh, for Terry Goddard, uh, uh, one of our attorney generals. I ran the uh, foreign prosecution unit. So I actually literally got to chase fugitives around in Mexico um, and do a lot of traveling back and forth, working with Mexican law enforcement and American law enforcement, kind of looking for the bad guys. Really, really fun, sexy stuff. It was great. And then yeah. got into uh, criminal defense work. And worked my way up through the courts, uh, you know, municipal courts, state courts, and then ended up in federal court and uh, made a few oral arguments before the Ninth Circuit, which was sort of as high as you can get without going to the Supreme Court, and uh, had a really, really great career, you know. And then, you know, like I was talking about earlier, one one time I went to Greece and I came back and <laughs> ran for office, and here, here, here we are. Got mad and run, ran for office, right? That's the, that's. That's always a great motivator, uh, too. You know, here's the deal, though. I, it, I, like, I had this, I've always had this sort of Jeffersonian view about, about doing something and serving for a time, 
right? I, 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 I love being a public servant because it is, the, the act of it is in and of itself poetic and American, right? If, if you have the means, if you have the capacity, it, you should do it. And, and, and that is, was always in my mind. It was always something that I had thought about, um, the possibility of it. And, and had I been doing things to set myself up for it, not really, you know, I, I, I had contemplated running for the state house for a little while. I had served with the party in, in one capacity or another, a little bit here and there, but nothing ever super serious. And then it was that, that switch was flipped and I felt it in my gut and I felt it in my heart. And I was really, 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 really impacted by the very notion that in my, literally in my town, people couldn't vote. They stood in long, long lines and they had, you know, they've got kids to get ready for school tomorrow or that second job to go to, or they had promised their mom that they would take her shopping that afternoon or that evening. And here they are standing for an hour and two hours and three hours in their day. And they didn't deserve that. And there were thousands of people in this circumstance across Maricopa County. And it was just it, it, it made it was just so nonsensical and confusing and, and infuriating, um, and and I just had to do something, and so, you know, one thing led to another, and the next day at two p.m. I was filing the papers. And now you're a recorder. Uh, now I'm the recorder. Yeah. Oh, and the look on those nice ladies' faces when I walked in and handed them the sheet of paper—they're like, "Oh, what are you running for?" And I handed it to them, and they looked, boy, they were white as a sheet. It was really kind of funny. I bet. Now they work for me, and they're very nice. They're all very nice. <laughs> I have wonderful employees. <laughs> how many? Actually, just out of curiosity, how many employees are you? Uh, do you have when you uh, when you take over a position like this? Well, we started with ballpark about 120 ish. We're good chunk over 150 now because. My predecessor ran an incredibly and inappropriately, frankly, lean ship. We had lots and lots of uh, FTEs, full-time employee slots that were open, had gone unfilled for years, um, and they were always talking about, oh, we just want to save money. And it's like, you're not serving people by saving money. You know, you've got a budget with employees. Fill it. Serve the people. That's your job. So we filled a bunch of those. We're over 150 now. Um, you know, but we've we've changed quite a bit. Like I said, the the election department had 21 employees in it, and after we went through the 2018 cycle, and you know, we told the board we need 26 more employees, and this is a majority Republican board, and they're looking at me saying, "Listen, you tax and spend liberal, you've got 21. You're asking for 26 more. We want to do an independent uh, staffing analysis." And I said, "Okay, go ahead," and they did. And, of course, the independent staffing analysis came back and said, uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, the recorder needs about 26 more employees. And so I sat there quietly with a smug grin, and uh, and I got 26 more employees wow. because that's what we needed. Right. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's a good thing. Sometimes all you need to do is, is do the, the analysis, right? Sometimes you just look at it like the business, but the business isn't making a widget or making a profit. It's serving people. And if you can figure out a way to quantify that, then there are some business principles that are applicable. 
in running some parts of government. And that's not the whole thing, and I don't believe that government should run like business, but I think you can pick and choose some of those techniques and some of those methods to make government work better. Are you saying sometimes facts matter in uh, in government? Good Lord. <laughs> yeah, please. So, um, so with those new... Uh, and uh, remaining uh, employees, what changes are you instituting so that there won't be uh, two or three hour long lines? How, how, how is democracy gonna work in Maricopa County uh, in this next election, which uh, may have some large consequences on our nation and our world? Well, we're already doing it way better. And you know, I've already mentioned the 42% increase midterm to midterm that we had for the fall of 2018. Uh, we're communicating a lot more with people. We created a community relations team that gets out into the public and talks to people about the time, place, and manner of their elections. That's critical, right? We've got to talk to people. I know a lot of clerks and elections folks that are like, that's not my job. That's the political party's job. That's, you know, the, the issues and the candidates can do that. No, our job is to preserve and protect democracy. And that means if the schools aren't educating folks on it, and the parties are doing a not-so-great job, and the candidates are only self-interested, we need to be the advocates for democracy. That's our job, right? So we're talking to people, number one. Number two, as far as just the presidential preference election is concerned, you know, they had reduced the number of polling places down to 60 uh, for the size of this place. Wow, uh, it wasn't that's very insane. Much. We're, we're taking it back, we're working with the board, we're taking it back up to 220, which is more than three times as big, they only had two check-in lines at every polling place. We will have six check-in lines at every polling place. Their old e-poll book system took about four minutes to check in the average voter. Our new site book system that we created completely in-house with our in-house IT programmers takes less than a minute. So you go from four minutes to a minute, you go from two to six lines, and you go from 60 to 220 polling places, and we only have one party that's going to be on the ballot. So there's a low likelihood that we're going to have long lines at the presidential preference election in 2020 in March. Insofar as moving forward, we've got a new tabulation system that's going to get us results quicker, and we've got uh, electronic adjudication uh, validation, which is bipartisan, so we're looking at uh, using much better technology. The old tabulation system that we had was purchased in 1996 using, get this, 8-bit technology. Wow. That's right. I didn't say it wrong. 8-bit technology, uh, which was a big challenge for our programmers um, in creating ballots. You know, in a, in a jurisdiction this size, we could have somewhere between 11 and 15,000 styles of ballot. So you tried doing that with 8-bit technology, um, and it, it can get a little rough. Uh, it can get a little dicey. So, you know, we... we Were you using dot matrix printers, too, when you, uh, <laughs> you printed these things out? With the, with the paper that comes out in a long stream. Yeah. So it's all connected. We actually have those. Uh, <laughs> we have a lot of those attached to each of our tabulators because that's how we, use the, we verify the hash codes to, to check the software. Uh, on our on our security side, and as far as security goes, you know I got to tell you that's always a big question for election administrators. The biggest hack that happened in the United States and is happening in the United States is the fact that we hate each other. 
right? We've right. been caused to mistrust one another, and we believe that the other side is filled with uh, cannibals and 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 people from Jupiter, um, and and we just don't don't you know you look at someone's voter registration and 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 they're either good or evil, and that's just so wrong. It's just so not the way we should be treating our neighbors and our friends. Um, you know, I've heard people that are like, oh, I can't be friends with that guy anymore because he supports this person or, you know, she's nuts because X, Y, and Z. And it's just like, really? Look, we all want our kids to have good opportunities. We all want to have decent health care. We all want a decent place that's relatively safe to live in. We all want to go on vacation once in a while. I mean, we want so many of the same things. The fact that we hate each other now, that's the hack. Right. That's the biggest problem with American elections. And as Americans, we should be rejecting all of that. As patriots, we should be rejecting all of that divisiveness that has infected our society. And we should be looking across the aisle and saying, what is it that brings us together? And let's work towards boosting that. And then we can slowly but surely work on that which we disagree. Because, look, I've seen plenty of times where ultra-progressives and like these really conservative libertarian types will get together and advocate against the middle. And that's happening more and more. And it's like, you know, can't we, and I don't want to sound all Pollyanna and just be like, can't we all just get along? Uh, That's not what I'm looking for, but I'm looking for some reasonableness. So that's the biggest security concern that I have, is that we're going to mistrust one another and our systems so much that we won't have faith in the election system. That's what our enemies want. Um, The other parts are really sort of the basic security stuff that you have in any other industry. We have to lock down our data a little better. uh, And uh, our biggest vulnerability is our people. You know, Um, that's always uh, the biggest entry point for our systems is our folks, just to make sure that they're crossing their T's and dotting their I's uh, every day when they come in and when they leave, uh, that they're acting in a secure manner and that they're, uh, you know, uh, paying attention to the details. Other than that, I think American elections are in really, really good shape. I'm very positive on the way we've looked at best practices. Um, I'm excited about the way we're working with folks at uh, the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI and our local and state law enforcement partners. Um, you know, things are things are good uh, in that area. They can always improve. It's not 100%, of course, but uh, I think we're in decent shape. Is there something you'd like to see at the federal level that would that would make a major difference in either the, the threat of divisiveness or the how we run our elections? Um, you know, we're facing a, a likelihood. Thing. Yeah. yeah. If there was one thing that I'd like to see at the federal level, it's this. I would love for the federal government and all the Congress people and the senators and everybody else to understand that it is not the secretaries of state who run elections. God bless them. We love them. We're great partners with them. They are regulators. They're not administrators. There are 3,144 counties and parishes in the United States of America. And some of them have subdivisions that have their own election departments, cities, towns, etc., And all of these thousands of voting jurisdictions run their own show. And so what I'd like to see is an organization like the EAC, the Elections Assistance Commission, 
funded and empowered in order to help elections administrators, not just the regulators at the secretaries of state. And I know it's easier for Congress just to foist a bunch of money onto the secretaries and say, you distribute it, but that doesn't recognize the reality on the ground. Right? I've got counties in here in Arizona that have a county recorder's office. You know, one of my compatriots has three people in her office, and that includes her, the elected. She's got to do all the same work that I have to do. And I got 150 people. Now, her county's a lot smaller, to be sure, but they've got the same kinds of rec- uh, you yeah. know, uh, requirements for documentation and, and all the technical requirements and stuff. It's a hell of a lot harder for them. So if I was to do one thing with Washington, it wouldn't necessarily even be a lot more money, which is a pretty typical ask. It would be the acknowledgement that elections are run locally, not at the state level. Those folks are great regulatory partners, but they don't actually do the work. Well, from one local government official to another, right? I think, I mean, that's that hopefully is one of the messages of this podcast is you want housing built it's not going to be built by state governments. Uh, it's going to be built by all these little localities that all have different realities on the ground and giving or running elections or managing public health issues or what, whatever it is that you're worried about. Recognizing that and giving the governments the flexibility with certain outcomes that they need to see, right, with certain regulations, it would make such a difference to the policies of this country um, which is, it's too big to try to figure it all out from Washington, D.C. and, you know, try to deal with a country of 300 million people and community by community, empower the local folks who are on the ground. And you're a great example of that. Yeah, you know, and, and there's so much diversity as well. So, you know, managing it obviously becomes easier when you, when you disperse the management uh, uh, responsibilities out to the states specifically. I totally get that, you know. But the Constitution doesn't just end in that one section that the states run elections. It says the states run elections, and the Congress can pass laws to do, to you know, to kind of help with that. I'm obviously paraphrasing. Those were not the words in the Constitution. Yeah. But you know, we've got, like I said, we've got agencies like the EAC um, who can help, and then we've got a lot of other really great partners in election administration and and helping professionalize uh you know this kind of work across the country um i work with the national democratic county officials Uh, we've got an election protection project that we're working on uh you know to help local county officials uh do better uh, and give them hopefully some resources to help out their um their operation so you know this work isn't just maricopa county it's not just arizona the stuff that I'm doing now and that, that, that I've tried to engage with uh, other folks is, 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 is national in scope as well um, when we can, right, when I've got time to do that sort of thing. And uh, it's just exciting, and it's, it's, uh, it's such a privilege uh, to do this work. I'm so grateful, you know, and, and, and who can be this lucky? Like, look at the great stuff we've done, and, and it's just, you know, it's this guy from Nogales Arizona, uh, having this impact here, uh, for literally millions of people. It's really, it's, it's thrilling and, and humbling at the same time. Absolutely. Before we go, I think one of the last things I want to touch on is, you know, you've, you've been on this, it's 
relatively short time engaged in just tremendous public service, trying to make democracy work. Um, and you're obviously fulfilled and grateful for it. You've also at the same time been engaged in sort of your personal health. And I think a lot of people at home would think this job would just be, you know, full of sleepless nights and fast food and everything else. Talk about how you integrate sort of your personal health into your public service for everyone who's busy at home and thinking, can I do both? Yeah, you can do both. Um, I'll tell you, it, it's a slow process, though, and you have to, you have to want to, and you have to be prepared. So, you know, just to, for for reference, I've lost about seventy five pounds now since the beginning of February, and we're at the beginning of October now. So, uh, it's been relatively dramatic. But, you know, I decided in January of two thousand nineteen that I really was in in crappy shape. Uh, I was going about 308, 310, uh, 308 pounds was, was what I checked in at. And it was just uncomfortable, literally uncomfortable to get out of bed in the morning. And, you know, this old Marine knows and knew that it was a problem. So I just decided to make the change. And I stopped, um, I stopped drinking as much as I had, uh, you know, and, it was really mostly social. It's not like I, you know, would go out and, 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 and indulge greatly, but you know, one night a week, maybe two, if there was a banquet or something, I'd have a drink with a friend or two. And that's a lot of empty calories. One drink is a scoop of ice cream, uh, for all of our listeners out there. Just remember that. And then I just started exercising. I got with a trainer and I made the sacrifice to get up at four thirty every morning and we didn't change my diet. Um, we just said, let's just get your body moving first. And so I did that for a few months. And then um, then we started looking at diet after about 65, 75 days of just exercise only. And then I just the weight started coming off. And as I saw those results, uh, I got more and more motivated. And now I feel terrible if I don't get up at 4.30 in the morning <laughs> and hit the gym, which seems insane. That is insane. <laughs> It, but you know, here's the deal. It, it 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 is a little crazy, but but I feel so much better. You know, I get home in time to wake up my kids and cook them breakfast. You know, my my kids get me cooking them breakfast every single day, and I've already had my first workout. And then in the afternoon, uh, I'll do a second workout five days a week. Uh, which is a huge, huge commitment. And I told my staff and I told everybody else, I have to do this till I get myself in the right kind of shape. And I'm just about to the point where I'll cut it back to one a day. Um, but it's, you know, I mean, you don't have to be a crazy old Marine like me to do this sort of thing. You can make the adjustment. You've just got to give up something else. Right. You know, and I've, I, I'm not proud about it. It's just a fact. I never watched any episode of Game of Thrones. <laughs> Literally, and it has had zero impact in my life. Yeah. I've never watched a full episode or any real episodes of House of Cards. Um, you know, any of the other political stuff. West Wing. My sister loves that show, and she thinks I'm nuts that I don't watch it. Never seen any of it. You know, all of these extra things that we feel socially obliged to engage in 
It's, to me, time lost. You don't get it back. You're not doing anything for you. You're doing stuff to belong to a group or, you know, it's an idle curiosity. And that's not to say that I don't get to relax. You know, I get in with my with my friends once in a while and we play some mariachi music and do a gig once in a blue moon and you know i hang out with the kids and we'll play some board games or that one night werewolf game i don't know if you know it it's really fun you should no i've told that game yeah you should try it's it's a lot of fun but you know i still have a relatively normal life um and I'm still lucky, but I just don't do things that aren't going to be meaningful, right? I don't do things that aren't going to be something that I look back on tomorrow and say, that was time well spent, uh, because I don't get that time back. Right. Right? It's like it's like Ben Franklin. Um, I don't remember exactly. I'll do another crappy paraphrase of one of the founders. Uh, you spend time, you can't get, there's no getting it back. Yeah. You get one shot at every second, and then it's done. So, um, you know, I want to I want to spend my time well, and uh, and I am, and, and and I'm I'm having a great time at it. Well, first of all, congratulations, and uh, that's a that's motivation for the rest of us to even do half uh, half the commitment that you're showing. Second, I'd be remiss in pointing out that uh, one of the best ways to exercise is by listening to your favorite podcasts, like an honorable profession, uh, for example. Which I, which I do. I do listen to you occasionally. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take, trust me, at this point, I'll take anything I can get. But I want to thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you for the work you're doing. You know, it's not always, it's not super easy to feel good about democracy in America these days. Um, But to hear that this is happening in a um, highly contested area uh, among Democrats and Republicans and we're moving in the right direction should give give hope to us all. So thank you. Look, let me, let me, let me, and I appreciate that. But let me say one thing on that point. We're in the best times ever for this democracy because people know that they need to care. We didn't care. And that's why we got where we got. We didn't pay attention. And that's why we got where we got. Now we care. Now we pay attention. Tomorrow looks great. And that's what motivates me. We're, we're at the precipice of a, you know, it sounds dramatic, the dawning of a new part of our democracy. I'm super excited about tomorrow. All right. And Listeners at home, if you don't uh, if you don't agree with Adrian, he's going to come to your house at four thirty in the morning and make you run a couple miles. So uh, so you better uh, he's going to turn off your Game of Thrones. Better get ready and uh, and take solace and uh, appreciate the the opportunities we have right now. Thank you, Adrian. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us, and uh, look forward to our next episode of An Honorable Profession. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcast. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we're keeping things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. <laughs>